0: G'day folks and welcome to the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. My name's Josh Power and this podcast is an opportunity for me to interview anglers in the fly fishing community, both within Australia and overseas. I'll be speaking with people that I find interesting and inspirational, industry leaders and anglers that have helped pave the way for future generations and hopefully in turn preserve a piece of fly fishing history. I hope you enjoy the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fisho's Tack World Harvey Bay, your one stop fishing shop on the Fraser Coast stocking a wide range of fly tying materials and tackle with access to all the leading brands. Mako Eyewear, a proudly Australian owned eyewear company that has been on the leading edge of polarised sunglasses for over 25 years. Manic Tackle Project, a collective of like-minded anglers bringing some of the world's best fly fishing brands to the Australian and New Zealand market, including Sims, Scott Flyrods, Abel, Ross and Waterworks Lamps and Reels, Airflow fly Lines, Loon Outdoors and much more. And Garmin Australia, whether you're chasing a new chart plotter, fish finder, trolling motor or audio system, Garmin has you covered. Hi, I'm Jim Barchi from the Scott Flyrod Rod Company, and I'm joining Josh today on his podcast. G'day, Jim. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for making some time. I know that you're a, um, a busy bloke running Scott Fly Rods and trying to fit everything into your schedule, so I really appreciate you coming on and having a chat. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, first of all, we might start off, Jim, with a bit of your backstory before we delve into Scott Flyrods Rods as a company. So, Where did you grow up and how did you originally get into fly fishing?
1: Yeah, I grew up in uh, Northern California. Um, Fly fishing, what a blessing it's been for me. Um, It really changed my life um, in so many positive ways. Uh, So I started out, um, my, my family's actually all from Montana, and so I used to spend summers up there. My grandfather would take me. Um, And, you know, as a kid, oftentimes, you know, you go do stuff, but, you know, you're a kid. (laughs) So um, it was probably when I was about 14 or 15 that I really kind of bonded with it um, and got into it on my own. Um, And by the time I was able to drive, which in California is 16, um, I started chasing trout and North Coast steelhead uh, up and down the West Coast. Um, And it just became an obsession of mine. Um, Started hanging out in fly shops, learning how to tie flies uh, with uh, Andy Puyons at Creative Sports in the Bay Area, who was at at the time uh, a very... Uh, cutting-edge fly tire. Um, and then eventually, by the time I got to college, I started guiding um, for shops like the Fly Shop Redding and Fly Fishing Outfitters um, and some of those great uh, early West Coast pioneer fly shops. Um, and uh, that's how I got connected to Scott, actually. Um, is Scott Fly Rods was based in San Francisco. Um, and they were pretty legendary around the Bay Area and around the West, not widely known outside of it. Um, but I used to go hang out at the shop and cast rods. Um, and uh, <clears throat> eventually the owner got so frustrated with my time wasting, <laughs> of casting fly rods out in the alley of Clementina Street. He's like, look, either do some work around here or get the hell out.
0: <laughs> Stop dirtying up the core grips. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Um, and uh, and then eventually that led to a part time job while I was in college. Um, and uh, yeah, I I had other plans. Um, I had actually planned to go to graduate school. And right around that time, uh, the founder of the company, who was in his late seventies, uh, had a stroke and was incapacitated and had to sell the company. Um, And the new owner said, Hey, you know, I really want to get this company out of the city and move it somewhere. Great. That, you know, is more aligned with our lifestyle and interests. Um, And he had some short list places in Idaho and Montana. And, uh, and then he said, Hey, just come out to this place in Colorado that I found and tell me what you think, you know? And I said, well, I have these other plans. He's like, just come out. So I uh, I came out in the springtime. Uh, the ski area was open in Telluride. It was a blower powder day, had a great day on the mountain. Uh, well, after I was completely burned out, <laughs> um from a great day of high altitude skiing i came down and it was a sunny gorgeous day and i'm like "Oh, check out the river i go down to the river and catch boatloads of fish on dry flies and i was like graduate school can wait a year or two you know i mean i'm accepted i can always go later so i'll just take a, a flex here and um that's
0: that led to the past 30 years i think it was a good choice mate i think um yeah <laughs> yeah Helping um, build fly rods and that sort of thing, and growing the brand was a um, definitely a good choice for you. So going back a little bit, the history of Scott fly Rod, So where was it originally started, and how did the name come about? Like I know it was started in 1974, so we're going on 50 years next year, which is an incredible feat, um, especially like all American made. So yeah. quite an outstanding achievement.
1: It's actually a, a a remarkable story because for 50 years now, Scott has only done one thing and that's handcraft fly rods um and i mean we've never gotten into reels and lines and other product categories Um, we've really remained absolutely focused on one mission and that's building the best fly rods in the world and to have been able to accomplish that um is a pretty crazy story Um, And so, you know, it all started with uh, the founder, Harry Wilson, who in he was, first of all, he was a a casting geek and fly fisherman who was a big part of the Golden Gate casting uh, ponds out in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, um, which is arguably one of the, you know, The epicenters of fly casting innovation and um, and and it's it's funny to think that at that time the Bay Area was really a huge hub of fly fishing. There was all kinds of innovation going on. You had companies like Scott, uh, Winston fly rods, Powell. A lot of the leading brands at the time were based in the Bay Area. Um, you had a lot of innovation in in fly tying going on. Um, the shooting head was developed there. All kinds of cool things were happening. So it was an exciting time in the sport, um, and Harry was right in the middle of it. Um, and uh, he started out as an innovator of short light line fiberglass rods for backpackers. Um, And at the time, fiberglass was the main material. Um, Graphite rods did not yet exist. Um, And most of the rods were seven to eight feet long, five, six, seven weight rods, um, and typically two-piece. And Harry's early reputation was built on making, um, really smooth casting, really great fishing fiberglass rods in formats like seven foot, three, four piece and five piece, um, really, uh, portable rods that people could take into the high country in the mountains and fish, uh, native trout with. Um, and so he built an early reputation as, uh, uh, you know one of the best makers of, of multi-piece fiberglass rods um, and uh, that's actually where he developed the hollow internal ferrule which um, became a hallmark of Scott and to this day we still use um, uh, but early on um, probably four years into that project the first graphite rods came out and, uh, they were introduced by the, the biggest fly rod company at the time, which was Fenwick. Um, but, but they took this material and basically just substituted it for glass. So they were making, uh, you know, seven and a half foot, six weights out of it. Um, it was definitely a positive change from glass. But Harry's big light bulb moment that really put Scott on the map was he, he was convinced he could make a long light line fly rod um, out of this material. And so, you know, he was telling all his casting buddies at the Golden Gate Ponds he was going to make a nine foot four line rod and everyone thought he was insane. They were like, you know, just like any, any innovation, if you haven't, like, if it wasn't possible before, it's hard to imagine it possible now. Um, but he was determined and didn't give up. And he, he kept working at it with this new material. Um, he didn't even know how to join it at the time. He was using brass cane ferrules. And then he tried glass. And eventually he's like, hey, I could, I could make my hollow internal ferrule out of graphite. And in, I think it was 1977 scott introduced the world's first nine foot four line rod out of graphite and it was it was revolutionary it really changed fishing on technical trout fisheries like the henry's fork and hat creek in california and all these rivers that had difficult to catch fish that required precise presentations long leaders small technical fly patterns match the hatch dry fly fishing Um, And all of a sudden, it became possible to fish, you know, 15-foot 5X liters and size 20 flies and, um, you know, line control and things like that were vastly improved. And and that really set off Scott in the industry.
0: So, And how did the name come about?
1: Uh, Well, his last name was Wilson. um, And there's a large global sporting goods company called Wilson um, and he was worried about getting sued so he he named it after his son Scott
0: (laughs) that's the next best (laughs) thing
1: yeah so um, yeah and and I guess you know from there they say the rest is history Uh, so we've we've tried to continue in that spirit of innovation ever since Um, so Scott has done a lot of Things like, just like the nine foot four line seems so commonplace now, um, you know, we made the first multi-piece graphite rods, four and five piece, um, made the first switch rod before it was even, there was a name for it, um, uh, or even a commercial fly line available. Um, we were, we were telling people how to splice fly lines to, to use it, um. Uh, first blue water rod. Just a lot of appl- application-specific innovations, um, both on from a fishing perspective and then also from a technology per- perspective. Yeah.
0: And that's, I guess, what makes the Scott difference. Like you guys are really leaders in innovation and um, really making specific fishing tools and making the best rods that you can absolutely make. So,
1: yeah, that's that's our approach for sure. Is um, first we ask why <laughs> um, why should we work on this um, if we have a good reason um, then how uh, and, and once we answer those then the real fun stuff starts which is you know materials applications and and it, it it's not just for us the blank we look at the rod as an entire ecosystem so, a reel seat isn't just a way to hold your reel on the rod. It's got to be more than that. And and guides aren't just something for the line to run through. Um, I mean, there's a lot of premium rods out there that use 10 cent Chinese snake guides on them. Um, that's not good enough for us if, if there's an alternative. Um, you know, we use things like nickel titanium recoils and you know, handmade snake brand guides. Um, you know, we try and always challenge ourselves to use the very best componentry along with our blanks. And if and if it doesn't exist, we challenge our, our suppliers to make it for us. Um, so, uh, it yeah, it's it's always fun when we get to that stage because we're um, trying to think of you know what are the very best things available? How can we improve not only the performance, but also just the joy of using the product?
0: That's it. Everyone works so hard these days. When you spend time on the water, you want to be enjoying the whole process. Like you don't want to be going, oh, I'm, I'm fishing with gear that I'm not really happy with and it sort of dulls down the experience. So if you can be yeah maximizing your time on the water and enhancing it, then it's yeah it's worth the way worth, worth yeah, to and- basically
1: absolutely and just making i mean like i said f- for me personally fly fishing has been such a blessing um both as a passion as a career but also I, all of my best friends that i've met fishing um and that's probably the most important part of it um and so i really appreciate what uh the sport and the industry has done for me and my life and People I'm surrounded with, and I, I feel, you know, obligated doesn't sound right, but I feel inspired to try and, you know, give back in that sense of, of, you know, I would feel bad if we weren't doing, if if we couldn't honestly look at ourselves and say we did the very best on this that was possible at this time, in you know, so. Um, I feel like it's a little bit of a give back for all it's given me.
0: And Scott really is a great supporter of the industry and the community as well. Like they're they're big supporters of small independent fly shops and that sort of thing, and don't supply Amazon and all the big guys. And I think that's such an important thing in this day and age.
1: Absolutely, it's it's very core to who we are and and our values, um, and and not just supporting the independent fly shop, but also. Uh, supporting important causes that give us better access to better water through conservation and through, um, you know, making sure that
0: our fisheries are healthy and, and uh, accessible to people. So and that's important to us as well. And so when you started working for Scott, initially um, it would have been odd jobs around the factory and that sort of thing, but when did you actually start designing rods and what was the first model that you did design?
1: Yeah, um, so I, was, I worked in virtually every rod building position um, <clears throat> and it was early on in the transition of ownership that Scott actually got its um, first blank rolling equipment. Prior to that, um, there was really only a couple of companies in the world that rolled graphite blanks, um, and most people sourced their designs through those companies. Um, And once we got that equipment, I started learning that process and exploring that. Um, And then it was about two years in um, that I designed the G88 series. So uh, at the time we only made the G series, um, but we had been making eight foot, eight and a half, nine foot, 10 foot rods. um, And I really liked the eight foot eight inch format, um, especially in like the three, four, five weight ranges, um, because it, it gave you the line control and roll casting ability and uh, the best attributes of the nine foot rod. But the swing weight and and the uh, just the feel of it in the hand felt like a, a much shorter rod. So you could basically get the the performance attributes of a nine foot rod, um, but with the lightness and sort of lively feel of a, of a shorter rod. And those ended up being a great hit. Um, And to this day, we still make the eight foot eight inch rods and they're our most popular G series rods. Um, And it's now the third iteration of them, but um, uh, they've stuck around. It's one of our kind of hallmark, lengths and, and uh, uh, probably among the most popular trout rods we've made since then. So
0: that's one of those things with Scott fly rods. You guys really don't bring out a new model until you feel you can really, um, enhance it sort of thing. Like, was it the Radian was around for eight years? Was it before it was replaced by the Centric?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I said, the first question we always ask is why? Um, you know, we don't just bring out something new just to try and refresh product cycle and um, you know turn it over for the sake of turning it over. Um, so, if we can't really justify it either through a new application or a new materials innovation, then you haven't answered the first question. So. <laughs> So, get back to work on figuring out either some new materials or looking for new applications.
0: So, in regards to materials and innovation, that sort of thing, since you started designing rods, have there been, um, like, has it come leaps and bounds with graphite technology or has that mainly remained the same? And has it come down more so to design and different types of resins that have become available over time?
1: Yeah. So, I always like, I, I use a couple of analogies when I talk about it. Um, one is the, the cooking analogy, which is to say um, we all have access to the same ingredients, but I may be able to make something fantastic out of it while you might burn it to a crisp and serve something inedible. I mean, so, so, so if you look across all rod companies, fly or conventional or anything, no one has Uh, Proprietary material. I mean, we're talking about global industrial companies that make graphite um, and they supply, you know, fortune 50 companies like Boeing. So, you know, a a small rod company that does, you uh, you know, probably not even a day's revenue in a year that a company like Boeing does. Doesn't dictate what's available in the market, um, so that's just a marketing myth. Um, so, if you uh, and, and then the other analogy I like to use is um, think of it like automakers. So the graphite companies you've got Mitsubishi, Hexel, um you've, you know Toray, uh, they're the global suppliers of the best graphite fibers. Um, And they're just like Toyota, Ford, GM um, in that they all offer a sedan. They all offer a compact SUV. They all offer a pickup truck. Um, And so those would be the different fiber classes. You know, you've heard the term modulus. So there's standard modulus, intermediate, high, ultra high. Um, And I may prefer a Ford F-150 and you may prefer a Toyota Tundra pickup, but they're equivalent, right? I mean, so so you I might prefer Toray fiber, and you might prefer Hexel fiber, but we're gonna have access to about the same classes of fiber. Um, so where the real innovation has come over over the last couple of decades is in the glue that holds it together, the epoxy resins, um, and then in the application in terms of design and layup. So, uh, And then, again, we can go back to the kind of cooking analogy. So we may have the same basket of ingredients, but the way we combine them and the way that we ultimately, you know, Serve it on the plate is where the differences lie.
0: And so, with the, um, with the build of a Rolex, like so you go just roll your own blanks basically, everything start to finish. Can you just run us through the process of building like a graphite rod start to finish?
1: Sure. Um, in our case, uh, we take about two weeks to do it. Uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of hands that actually touch it um, through the steps. But it starts with pulling a roll of graphite out of the freezer, uh, cutting a length of it, Um, and then we hand-cut our patterns. Um, Some people have automated that, but uh, we basically lay them out with calipers, and then we have a big steel straight edge and cut it with a razor knife. Um, And in our case, we use... A lot of, in in a given rod, we might combine six different materials and up to two or three different resin systems. So depending on what piece we're making, um, it might not just be one type of graphite. It might be multiple patterns laid up at multiple angles. Um, And uh, so once we have that all cut, um, we attach the lead edge to a steel form, which is called a mandrel, and that determines the starting and ending diameter of the part. So it's basically a tapered steel rod. um, And we design the rate of change in the tapers, the starting and ending diameters, um, all of that. Um, And those are reusable. So uh, we roll that pattern onto the mandrel, uh, put a compressive tape over it, hang it in a rack, uh, wheel it into an oven and bake it. Um, so the epoxies that hold these together are thermoset. Um, so they're, they catalyze with heat rather than through, uh, you know, chemical reaction like a two-part epoxy. Um, And then once we've cured the part and it's solidified, um, it comes out of the oven and the mandrel is extracted with a hydraulic puller and we're left with a hollow tapered tube. Um, And in our case, um, since we have almost a 50 year history of making rods, uh, we literally have thousands of patterns um, of individual pieces. that we've designed and built over the years. Um, uh, If you think of, you know, like a four-piece G-series that's actually made out of six individual tapered tubes, four for the four pieces and then two different tubes for the hollow internal ferrules. Um, So, you know, when, when... Look over that history of all the series we've made. There's thousands and thousands of patterns um, and tubing that goes into it. Um, from there, uh, we take them and we quality control the pieces. Um, then we build the ferrules, um, and at that point, you have a, a blank that you know is the right length configuration pieces. And we sort of run our operation as a blank rolling facility and then a rod finishing facility. Um, so once we've uh, put together the blanks we want to build into rods, then they, the first step is to send them to the cork department where um, we put the real seats and grips on them. Um, and then the next step is to... Uh, wrap the guides on um, and that's done all by hand by hand winding thread over the guides Um, uh, since we don't paint our rods we get most of our uh, kind of cosmetic look from our thread work Um, so on a typical nine foot four piece rod like let's say a nine foot five weight i think we have 48 different thread wraps on it it's pretty amazing. <laughs> That's a lot of time and work.
0: Um yeah, and and uh even just using the translucent threads and that sort of thing, it just shows the attention to detail with that thread work as well.
1: Oh yeah, and, and so our, our rod builders are super proud of their work. So we do things like uh each wrap is whip finished where the the last end of the thread is pulled back under the rest of the thread to hold it down and then trimmed off. Um, so we even tie off all of our wraps in line on the same side of the blank. So um, it's almost like a, a fine shotgun where the, where the screws are all aligned, um, the screw heads are all aligned uh, and we love using translucent threads so you can see the guide feet. So you can see that somebody actually paid attention and straightened them all. And um, so, yeah, we spend a lot of time after the rod is wrapped uh, prepping all that. And then the final step is to uh, coat the threads with an epoxy coating. Um, and again, similar. Uh, you know, we spend so much time and work wrapping them that it would be a shame to put a one coat high build epoxy coating on it. So we actually use four coats over four days and sand and trim in between them. Um, And what that allows us to do is keep really flat, thin coating with tight edges. And you can still see all the details like, the where the guide foot is sitting in the thread it doesn't obscure it with a big blob of of coating um and then the final step is to inspect it polish it put it in its case and liner and send it off to a happy fly shop
0: (laughs) and they're all hand signed as well like that's all done in in in-house as well and
1: absolutely so yeah every scott logo um Uh, Is done with pen and ink. Um, The model number, each Scott rod gets its own individual serial number. Um, So uh, we can track uh, when we made it, how it was made, um, and then ultimately who owns it because people register their rod for warranty. Um, And uh, it's, I think, it gives each rod, uh, you know, a unique. It feels unique, it feels one of a kind, and it is.
0: And they really are a thing of beauty. Like, you've got the highest grade cork grips on them, the nicest real seats, that raw, unsanded blank, hand painted logo model, that sort of thing, the best components. So, to look at them, they're very aesthetically pleasing. What's the yeah. um, what's the advantage of going that raw, unsanded blank as well?
1: Well, there, there's a few. Um, one is we put so much work into designing and rolling the blank that for us, uh, it would be a shame to cover it up with paint. Um, it also is another one of those little points of pride where we can't sand off sloppy work and cover it with paint. If it doesn't come out, perfectly clean out of the rolling room, you're going to see it. Um, and so, you know, that it was manufactured perfectly, that it was inspected that, um, you know, we didn't just run it through a sander and then, uh, cover it with paint. Um, the second thing it does is it preserves our design integrity in that, um, A centerless wet sander is somewhat precise, but it's not precise. Um, You cannot control, for instance, if you have a new sanding belt, it's going to sand a lot more material off than if you have one that's four days into being used. Um, Also, you can vary the speed, and the speed you run it through can determine how much is taken off. So it, it always seemed to us that if you spent all this time thinking through the design and trying to perfect it, and then you said, well, we're gonna overdo this by 10% because we're gonna sand it. Um, it could be 4%, it could be 12 but you don't know. Um, and so consistency from rod to like model, day after day, year after year, is we feel like it's much higher um and that's been one of the things i think that's been a hallmark of scott um in addition to our flex rating system that we developed um, which is basically a static deflection system um i think people feel like our rods are consistent so if if you love a nine foot four weight centric and you bought another one two years later. You're gonna, you're gonna know. You're gonna it's gonna feel familiar. You're not gonna feel like you have a different rod in your hand. Um, and so that's been yeah really great.
0: Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, there are a lot of variables because even coming down to if you were to sand it, the pressure that if you've got someone doing it one day, then another person the next day, even little things like that can change it drastically. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's just one of those things that just there's nothing to hide. Like it's a handcrafted rod. You can look at the blank. You can see if there's any imperfections. You can look at the the guide feet through the translucent binding. And it's really just showing that raw beauty. Um, And you literally, yeah, don't have anything to hide whatsoever.
1: Yeah, it's funny. We have a slogan that's exactly like that in the shop, which is, you know, we're so proud of our work. We want you to see it. (laughs) And and what that means is just what you said is like. That's why we let you see the guide feet through the wraps. That's why we let you see the graphite, the way it was made. That's why, um, you know, we really don't want to hide anything. We really want you to see it all. Um,
0: Does it also too, like by not sanding it, give it uh, more of a durability factor as well? That's debatable. Um,
1: I mean, there's so much that goes into that. Fly rods are amazingly complex things in that they're such thin-walled structures. Um, it, I mean, in some cases, a tip may only have one and a half wraps of graphite around the mandrel. I mean, and, and we're talking about uh, one wrap is, you know, 0.01... Inches, um, uh, you know, it's it, it's so so thin, um, and so a lot of things come into play on the dur- durability side, the quality of your glue systems, your layups, uh, the quality of how you rolled it, um, your cure cycle. Um, a lot, a lot of people have gone to these um, quick cure epoxies because it. it you know, reduces cycle times. So you can preheat the oven, roll a rack of parts in there and wheel it out in 15 minutes and pull the part. We use a four hour cure cycle. So we only go up two degrees a minute and we ramp it really slow because we're putting a cold piece of steel. You know, we don't want to just put it in a 300 degree oven and shock part. So um, we'll ramp up very slowly bring it to its cure temperature then ramp it back down over time and and so we we do a lot of little things like that um we we joke we say we always choose the hard way um because you know we could machine wrap our threads um with with power wrappers we could quick cure our blanks you know there's a lot of things we could do a lot faster just like we could get you know like some people we could get away with using lesser grade cork and cheap guides i mean but i I, we wouldn't feel right about it we would be hard to come in and look at one another in the morning (laughs) um yeah so so we'll we'll go the hard way
0: (laughs) there's the quick and easy way or there's doing it the right way just to make sure that you get that um, performance out of the rod and attention to detail yeah so, so we might as well um, run through a bit of the current lineup at the moment. So starting with the F series, which the fiberglass range was your original range to start it all off. Who's the sort of person that's going to buy a fiberglass fly rod and what are the benefits of fishing fiberglass in those shorter lengths over a graphite rod? Yeah. So for us, um, fiberglass
1: is an ideal material for short light line rods um, for short casts small fish um, and so somebody who dedicates a good amount of their time to small stream fishing and small native trout um, or to uh, you know farm pond fishing for for bluegill or sunfish um, is going to enjoy fishing that rod and that's why they're going to buy it um we're not uh doing it for some novel reason or nostalgic reason we really feel like casts from 10 to 25 feet and fish that you know range from 5 to 12 inches um, are ideal that's an ideal material for that application so and that's why we've continued to make fiberglass rods for 50 years. Um, yeah. So that's the person who's looking at that rod and fishing that
0: rod. And I guess you've got the fun factor of glass and tippet protection and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's no question that if we were making that same rod out of graphite, I, you know, in some cases you might back cast the fish when you set the hook. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, whereas... Fiberglass is is flexible enough and bends deeply enough that, um, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, catching a fish 15 feet away that uh, isn't much longer than your hand um, feels like fishing.
0: Puts the fun into it because it's all relative to what you're fishing. If it's a stream that's only, say, four foot wide and you're catching fish that are eight to ten inches long sort of thing. Yeah. Um, You don't want to be, as you said, backcasting them on the hook set. Absolutely. It's the
1: same way, the same reason I would never want a tarpon fish with a glass rod.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And that's it. You guys make glass rods for specific purposes, not for the sake of just making it a glass rod. Exactly. And so with the actual blanks, you guys utilize E glass um, as opposed to S glass, is the other type, isn't
1: it? Yeah. And we use E glass because it's a lower modulus. material which allows the rod to bend more deeply and so it suits
0: the application that we're we're making the rods for and the um the orange color of the blank is such a great heritage looking blank as well i think for anyone that is into that small stream fishing they're just such a, a cool looking rod and yeah it does make it look pretty old school which is great yeah as opposed to yeah you can just have just a black rod and it look like any other graphite rod or whatever whereas like an orange scott rod you can always pick it from a mile away and it just yeah but they have their own look and then going into um, the G series. So that's your medium action freshwater series. So, which is probably more of a um, presentation dry fly rod. You utilize the hollow internal ferals. Um, Did you want to talk a bit about the G series? So in its current iteration, so it's been around for, yeah, since the start and it's had a few iterations since then.
1: Yeah. And so that will always be part of our lineup. Um, There's, especially in trout fishing, Um, there's always a place for a medium action rod, Um, uh, especially for fine tippet, uh, small fly fishing, Um, whether it's wet or dry. um, um, But so many trout are caught on foot at relatively close range. And so, you know, maximum distance and maximum line speed aren't always what's called for. Um, and so sometimes you need that touch and that feel uh, in those closer ranges um, and you need to be able to land good sized fish on light tippet. Um, and that's just the sweet spot for that series. Um, that's really what it's designed for and what, what it, it's intended to do.
0: Okay, and some of the technology involved with the um, the G series. So there are multi-modulus blank. Can you explain what a multi-modulus blank is?
1: Yeah, it's um depending on where in the given section we want flexibility or stiffness um, or uh, torsional resistance, um, we we can choose the right fiber. Um, and the right fiber alignment, in and put it into that section. So early on, I think every graphite rod was simply one kind of material, top to bottom, one orientation, zero degree fiber, meaning continuous fiber running uh, handle to tip, Um, and... Now, like I said, in, in our most advanced blanks, we use up to six different fibers, at and up to four different orientations of, of layup. So it really allows us to fine tune um, our, our blanks. And a, a cool thing about the G series, with its hollow internal ferrule, is we do the exact same thing with the ferrules. So we actually have a different wall thickness. Um, and a different stiffness profile for the tip ferrule than we do the butt ferrule, so we actually can roll those pieces and fine tune them. So we can we can really control where we get where we get bend and where we want support. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a really amazing rod in that respect.
0: And those hollow internal ferrules—that's just getting. With a medium action rod, it's basically getting as close to as a one piece um, in that flex profile as you can get.
1: Yeah, that's the whole idea behind it. So there is no there is no change in taper and there is no change in wall thickness to accommodate uh, putting the pieces together. Um, so it gives us the ability to
0: basically make the equivalent of a one piece rod. Yeah, eliminating any flat spots and that sort of thing. And Exactly.
1: Um, we have a, a great picture in the shop of uh, Harry Wilson, the founder, uh, deadlifting with a, with a, a vertical handle, uh, four-piece G-series rod with, uh, a, I think, two one-pound weights on the end. And the, the tip is below the bottom of the handle. And it is a perfect... <laughs> parabola it's 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 there's not you couldn't even tell it wasn't a one piece it's it's great and there's a graph you know a line graph horizontal line graph behind them and it's it's just a phenomenal
0: thing to see it's only really achievable with a medium action rod you wouldn't be able to do that with a fast action rod would you because of the curve profile and that sort of thing so exactly with some of the other technologies that go into the G series did you want to um, just brush over sort of react X core and arc and explain um, they're obviously the terms that Scott's given them and what they are
1: yeah those are um, those are common to all of all of our rods really um, and and you know full disclosure they're they' you know it's kind of marketing speak but they are actually rooted in, in real things so, Um you know, we believe in a design philosophy that uh favors thin walls but larger diameters um to create sensitivity, torsional stability, um, and also a progressive bending profile. Um so you can get stiffness in a fly rod two way well, three ways. One is the material choice, um, But equally important are uh, diameter. Diameter is directly proportional to stiffness um, and then wall thickness. So if you want a skinny diameter, you're going to have to have a lot more wall thickness for the same equivalent stiffness profile. Um, uh, Again, we prefer the thin-walled approach because we, we feel like we can get much more, uh, like I said, sensitivity, feel, um, transmission of feel, uh, torsional stability. So um, all those things are really what go into accomplishing that. Um, and so the main the main goals behind those technologies are to maximize transmission of feel. Um, To maximize stability. Um, So, uh, meaning, you know, you want your bottom leg of your loop to be as flat as possible, right? Um, And as efficient as possible. Um, And that's what makes good casting. Um, And so, all of our design work goes into trying to accomplish those goals. Um, We want high recovery speed, which is integral to that nice flat loop. Um, But we don't want to get it through stiffness alone, because then you get kind of a dead feeling rod. And so using the thin wall approach um, allows us to accomplish that, to get fast recovery speeds without super high levels of stiffness. and so I think that's part of what makes them so enjoyable to fish um, and also so versatile um, because our rods are not um, what I would consider, not, not that a good caster can't cast them as far as any other rod, but we don't make uh, what I would consider pure casting rods. Um, we really take an approach where They've got a roll cast and they've got a mend and they've got a, you know, under tip cast just as well as a classic overhead shot. Um, you know, they have to protect tippet. Those things are integral to good fishing experience. Um, and those are sometimes in, not in alignment with just pure casting pure overhead casting so there's a balance um, to make the rod as good a fishing tool as you can um
0: i guess that's probably a good segue into the centric that's sort of where like it's your fast action freshwater rod and that's where it fast meets feel basically so you've got a fast action rod but still tons of feel it's not stiff and dead as you um sort of mentioned before um, so with the Centric, it replaced the, eight, uh, the Radian after about eight years. Um, and you actually launched that one during COVID. So did you have many design challenges or production challenges through that period? And
1: no, I, you know, definitely we had, um, I mean, design is always a challenge. Um, but luckily we have such a great community of uh, people who are part of the Scott family, um, who I consider some of the best anglers on the planet. Um, And they're so invaluable in providing feedback on prototypes. And I mean, we we typically spend a long time developing a rod and uh, many iterations of each model get fished and fished and fished and fine-tuned over and over and over again. So by the time we release it, I think we all feel pretty confident that it's going to be dialed. Um, for what we're trying to accomplish. Um, but on the, on the production side, we were really lucky because uh, like everyone else, we had no idea what was going to happen when we were mandated to shut down. Um, but we have such a tight group of rod builders. You know, Scott's really funny. Like we have 56 employees and only five are not rod builders. So uh, we have, like, we don't have marketing departments and and all kinds of admin people um, and multiple layers of sales management and all that. We put all our resources into rod building. And, you know, these are people, some of them have been with us over 20 years building rods. So when this all happened, we just said, hey, go home, stay safe, we'll pay you till our bank runs dry, like, till we don't have any money left don't worry, like, we don't want you to freak out. And, you know, um, and that turned out to be lucky, because two and a half months later, when we were allowed to to open the doors, we had our full crew, and they were psyched to be back building rods. Yeah. And so um, we were able to get through that without some of the you know, things that happened to other people like, you know, they came back to work and
0: nobody worked there. <laughs> um, so Yeah, it's pretty scary times and that sort of thing. And it's great to see that tight-knit community with Scott and looking after everyone basically like a family. So
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're, uh, like I say, a
0: lot of them have been with us for a long time and, and uh, you know, are so good at what they do. And the Centric saw the introduction of some new technology, Carbon Link and ARC2. So, did you want to touch base on Carbon Link and ARC2?
1: Yeah. So, Carbon Link is, is a name we came up with for our, a new resin system. Um, and it, it it's really it, it is not a, um, a additive resin, meaning it doesn't have nanoparticulate in it, um, which we don't use. Um, but it is a toughened epoxy system that is really, really good. Um, It cross-links really well and bonds really well. um, And that allows us to drop the resin content and get more of the performance of the fibers um, because we have less glue in between each one um, is probably the best way to illustrate that. so by being able to use less glue or filler, um, we get more out of the carbon fiber performance that we're looking for. Um, so that's, that's awesome. Um, and then ARC2, uh, we were the first company to use uh, ultra, ultra thin. So kind of the common building block of, of a fishing rod is... Uh, About 120 gram per square meter of fiber content. And and that's the basic thing that almost most rods have been built out of. Um, When we came out with arc, we came out with a 15 gram per square meter. So almost a tenth of the thickness. Um, And we used that as a a off-axis fiber so we could lay up materials in different directions but not be doubling the weight Um, and oh it's it's amazing stuff um so when we came out eccentric one of the reasons we came out with it is that we were able to get a 10 gram per square meter unidirectional graphite um which is unheard of uh only it's only made in one place in the world and it uh, and by one company and it it's like more expensive than gold leaf. It's it's insane. Um uh but it you know, a fifty percent reduction in weight there allows us to use it in the same way, um but you know, in a in a lighter format. So
0: and a few things like even the um lot like the type three anodized reel seat on them, like they're just a beautiful reel seat, like just a quick spin, the reels locked in, and yeah, it's just a piece of art itself. Like yeah
1: yeah and so like i said earlier on you know for us a reel seat isn't just a way to hold your reel on the rod it's got to make the fishing experience better somehow Um, so we try and think of details like that you know instead of using type 2 anodized we use type 3 hard coat Um, it has way better scratch resistance Um, it's uh, a much tougher uh, way of finishing the aluminum it when when i look at our reel seats uh things like the self-indexing ring so you don't have to try and line up the hood with the real foot um the speed thread so you can just spin them right up like you said all those things uh are fun for us to work on um because i like i said i think they enhance the fishing experience um even little things like alignment dots we were the first company to put those ever on ferals um just so you didn't have to sit there and eyeball the rod and try and line it up you know for a few minutes um you know you're so stoked when you get to the water you want to get
0: fishing (laughs) get straight into the hat. (laughs) yeah and there's such a versatile tool like i've got one of the nine foot five weights um i bought it for a trip down to tassie and it was just such an unreal rod to cast super lightweight but in versatility, like we'd be casting, I fished a um, Little Pine Lagoon there with a mate, and we'd be casting little tiny dry flies to tailing fish in super shallow water. But then if I was in a river, you could fish a dry dropper with it. And then back home here in Harvey Bay, um, in the river here, we've got Australian bass and sort of grunter and that sort of thing. So you, you're casting fairly big flies, like anything up to like a two O Dalberg diver, and I can still do it with that five-weight rod. And these fish are tied in the structure and undercut banks. And if you don't get them out quickly and turn their heads, they're straight in there. Um, So it's amazing to be able to fish something that you can be casting a tiny dry fly or a dry dropper and then go to something completely different again and still be relevant.
1: Yeah, it's cool. That's great. Uh, I I love the tailing fishing in Tassie. It's amazing.
0: Did you fish for Simon when you were down there at all? I did. Yes. Great bloke. He put me onto a few spots and introduced me to a few people. And Yeah, I can't wait to get back there sometime. Yeah, it's fascinating fishing though. I, I love that, you know,
1: those fish that come into those weed beds and their dorsals and tails are out. And it's a fun game.
0: It was definitely an experience for me because like occasionally here on the flats here in Harvey Bay, we'll have tailing golden for a valley. It's nothing like what it used to be in the 90s and early 2000s, but to then see a trout doing it, it was just incredible. Like when you're there first thing in the morning and you've got yeah, they've got their tails out waving to you, basically. Yeah, and we had wombats walking up to the edge of the lake in front of us, and we had a few deer running around the hills, and I just couldn't believe it. It was such a cool experience. <laughs> Very much so. And then moving on to um, moving on to the saltwater side of things. So sector, um, which replaced the Meridian. So the Meridian had a bit of a cult following with saltwater flats shows and. Um, so the, the sector replaced that in 2019. Um, it really set the benchmark for rod design, didn't it?
1: Yeah, it did. And, and actually, it was one of the quickest turnovers we've had in a long time of the series. And it was crazy because Meridian was such a good rod, and it still is, and it's so loved. But we couldn't not do this because we had an opportunity... Um, to deploy the carbon web technology that and it it was just such a good leap forward that we we, you know when things like that come along you got to jump on them um and so uh,
0: yeah anyway that was a great um opportunity and it's a it's a fantastic role so carbon web did you want to explain what carbon web is for anyone who's not sure
1: yeah, so carbon web is like our arc, except it's multi-directional, and so uh, we use that on the outside of the rod. And what it does is it it provides uh, additional hoop strength, but also a lot. What it really does is it provides a lot of torsional stability. So um, you know, we all wish we could. Cast in a perfectly straight plane on every cast, but um, you know when you've got a twenty-pound tailing permit in front of you, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you you lose focus on the cast, um, and and you know any any diversion out of the straight blind plane can take away from your cast, which can either reduce line speed, uh, reduce tracking and accuracy um hurt your performance in the wind, uh, or all of the above. And so if you can keep that rod from turning off axis, you know, the more you can do to do that, the more efficient your cast becomes regardless of you know what you're doing. Um, so it can help counteract some of that stuff and help maintain loop shape and line speed, which are really Key in saltwater fishing, um, because power doesn't beat wind. Small, high line speed loops beat wind, and and allow you to turn over flies uh, in into windy conditions. So um, it just helps with with delivery accuracy. Um, the other thing it helps with is is pick up and put down. So if you do miss your cast, um, you can pick up and redirect more easily cause you're not getting all that, that torque, uh, you know, turning, turning the blank off axis.
0: Yeah. Okay. I think that's a really good explanation. Um, it also saw the introduction of the new range of coil guides as well, which is a pretty big advancement in, um, yes. in componentry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So yeah, yeah. We had multiple opportunities with that. And, um, uh, and sort of, as I was saying, it's, uh, not just blank innovation for us, it's the whole package, so whenever we have an opportunity to
0: take the rest of the rod to the next level, we like to and so the sercoil guides are basically a um a recoil guide with a is a zirconium insert inside yeah, it?
1: and it's so it's the nickel titanium frame, which is great because it's a hundred percent corrosion proof it'll never rust Um uh, that's the other cool thing about a sector is that I would never recommend just leaving your rod in the boat um, in the salt water for its lifetime. But you literally could because there's nothing on that rod that can rust. And with Type 3 hard code on the reel seat and all nickel-titanium components, um, uh, it's, it's about as bomb-proof as you could get for a saltwater
0: uh, environment. And even the durability factor when you're traveling with the rod, the fact that that recoil just rebounds straight into shape, the insert's not going to pop out. You've got yeah near zero friction for casting, so it just really ticks all the boxes in the way of a guide on a saltwater fly rod.
1: Absolutely, and one of the you know one of the things with saltwater rods is that they're going in and out of the boat tubes, out of the rod holders, time and time you know multiple times a day, Um, and so having uh, guides that don't get bent or broken in that environment helps
0: because um, that, that can ruin your day. And what is the PVD coating that actually goes on them? Is it just like a, um, just a any corrosion type coating or how does that actually work?
1: It, it is just a, a physical vapor deposition co- coating, which is... Um, it's really on there to give them that color more than anything because the metal itself is uh non-reactive so it
0: won't corrode it it won't anyway yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so it just gives them that nice kind of black pearl color and do you think we'll ever see coils on any of the um the fast action freshwater rods or anything like that or is that something that you'd rather keep for the saltwater
1: there's really not a great reason to use them on freshwater, um, and there's some other types of materials. Like we use titanium framed uh, stripping guides on on uh, our freshwater rods, um, and they're a bit lighter. Um, the other thing is that nickel titanium does have a tendency to not like super cold temperatures. And we have a lot of people who fish year around through the winter. Um, and the nickel titanium can actually, uh, uh, in, in cold temperatures, let's say if you're taking ice out of the guides, they can stay flat until they warm back up.
0: And then they'll spring back to their shape. So, um, you know. I'm glad you clarified that because I know when this um, Centric first came out, Um, a couple of the reviews said, oh, it would have been nice to see Cera coils on there, but you've just explained it perfectly there. It's not necessarily the best guide for the application. Like there's lighter guides on the market and you're not having that issue as well if you are fishing through winter. So I think that's really good to clarify that point. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, so again, it's, you know, we really try and think through the application and how the rod's being used just because a component is best in class for one application doesn't mean it is for all the others.
0: Yeah, and I think for people looking from the outside that haven't been involved with the design process or know all the tech factors with it, it'd be quite easy to say, oh, why didn't they put coils on it? They're the latest and greatest thing. But um, yeah, if it's not going to suit the application, you're just doing it for marketing sake, really. Exactly. And then one of the the latest rods in the lineup from 2022 is the Scott Wave, which just replaced the title. Um, I've just picked up one of the 10 weights, which is going to be exceptional here for tuner and that sort of thing. I think in the wind, it's going to be an exceptional rod, um, but also two here for chasing barramundi and stuff like that. And on the flats, casting heavier crab flies. And I think it's just going to be a, a great all-rounder.
1: Yeah, we're, we're really excited about the rod, really happy with it. We were, you know the rapid development between Meridian and Sector kind of gave us an opportunity to use a lot of our knowledge from those two projects. Um, and I think the wave punches way above its weight class, um, in terms of performance, it's a, it's a phenomenal rod. Um, and in fact, uh, on a recent trip to Mexico, I was fishing wave rods, so very happily, uh, <laughs>
0: uh even though i almost always would have a sector in my hand um so it's hard to put the sector down sometimes like i've got the um nine foot eight weight and it's just an absolute pleasure to cast and i've got everything from like golden travail and queenfish here to barramundi up north on them and saratoga in the fresh water and it's such a beautiful rod to cast but you pick up a wave and you look at the attention to detail still there the super high quality cork um i even like the woven blue. Um, graphite insert in the real seat, like that's just a nice different touch, um, and I think yeah, it just goes really well with the Scott binding colors and and just something different as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're 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 excited about it. It's it's had just a great reception. Um, people are love loving them, um, fishing them hard. So, uh, and then the other good thing too is that um, they have a little different bend profile uh, and they're actually really really nice rods with with multi-density or sinking lines um because they're a little lower in line speed than sector which is i don't know about you but i i don't like blistering line speeds with uh big flies and sinking lines i want to open my loop up and slow everything down a little bit mostly to protect the back of my skull (laughs) uh and so they're they're fantastic with that so what we're finding too is a lot of people who saltwater fish sometimes but definitely chase big game in freshwater a lot um are loving them as crossover rods um because they're really multidisciplinary in that respect
0: I guess over there, because there a lot of your bass fishermen and carp fishermen and that sort of thing. The, Absolutely. The, um, lower, yeah. Like a seven weight, would be quite a popular rod. And even over here in Australia, like your Australian bass and your Saratoga and that sort of thing, they could be an exceptional rod for that.
1: Well, that's what surprised us is that the six and seven weight are selling almost as well as the eight, which is unheard of in a, in a traditional saltwater series. Um, the eight weight is always the best seller and the six weight would be way down the list. But because people are using them a lot for crossover, we've got people who you know, take an occasional redfish or bonefish trip but do a lot of smallmouth fishing, let's say, are um, just loving those rods.
0: And I guess also, to the, um, the price point of the wave also, it's a lot more attainable for a lot of people. So it's probably getting a Scott rod in the hands of people that might not necessarily be able to afford a, a Centric or a Sector or something like that. So it's opening up the market um so it's giving you i wouldn't call it a mid-price rod it's it's um sort of probably above a lot of the mid-price stuff but compared to a high-end rod they're super attainable yeah absolutely well i think we've covered a fair bit in the way of um rod technology and the, the different lineups um of current rods that you do and there is other stuff that you do like two handers and that sort of thing and through scott you also do split cane as well but um, I think over here in Australia New Zealand, that sort of thing, the F, the G series, the centric sector and WAVE, they're probably the, um, the, the main ones that people will be um, wanting to hear about sort of thing. Can we expect anything exciting coming for Scott's 50th year next year? That's a good question. We're always
1: working on new stuff. We have multiple projects right now, um, but nothing that we have planned. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah. We'll definitely have a 50th anniversary T-shirt and hat.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think it's one of those things too, as we've spoken about before, it's um, you guys really only release rods when there's necessity for it. So um, over the last year or last few years, you've been busy since the release of Sector and Centric and now Wave. Um, So it's one of those things that there's, technology or design wise um, there's probably not going to be anything that's going to pop up for the next few years at least because everything's gone into these new models.
1: Yeah we'll see Um, that's the thing that's always exciting is you don't know um, like I said uh, rod companies aren't dictating the development of that technology so you know having good networks inside of the composite companies and stuff is important and uh, sometimes we're surprised, um, and uh, like we talked about with Sector, uh, we weren't expecting to replace Meridian at all,
0: um, but, but the opportunity popped up. Can you see any new types of fibres coming up in the, um, the nearish sort of future that would replace graphite, or do you think graphite's here to stay for quite some time yet?
1: I think it's here to stay for a while, um, you know, despite some companies making claims of, you know, nanotubes and and graphene um none of that's ever been produced commercially and and would be out of reach uh cost-wise for any kind of uh you know sporting equipment if if it ever did come on the market um so uh, you know there's things that are theoretical right now like graphene um but i don't see it being commercially available for a long time Um, and then most of the other developments in fiber are on um, natural based fibers so using things like hemp or flax um, and turning them into composites which is great for um, some applications
0: but so far they haven't turned out to be useful in making fly rods and before we wrap things up, you recently just got back from the Keys. Did you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. I always want to talk about fishing. I <laughs> <laughs> well, thought it'd be a good way to wrap up the podcast. It's always good Absolutely. to hear fishing stories.
1: So. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I fish the Keys a lot. I've had a skiff down there for about 20 years. Um, so, I just go and fish out of my own boat. Um, you know, primarily target um, bonefish permit and tarpon. Um, this trip was focused on tarpon because, uh, in the early season, um, the tarpon come into the backcountry bays and lay up and swim around. They're not yet, uh, migrating on the ocean side and it can be really exciting fishing to, uh, pull shallow basins and grass beds, um, looking for these, you know, big hundred pound laid up fish and uh it's a really visual experience where uh, you know you can see your fly land in front of their face and watch their pec fins pop out and their their uh body coil up and then pounce on the fly and then all all mayhem breaks loose so uh it's it's
0: super fun um and uh yeah we had a good trip We, we did well did you um, get to fish the new wave at all? Or were you mainly using your sectors there? Or? No,
1: my boat actually has um, two-piece 8-foot-10-inch sectors on it. Um, so, uh, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, um, rigged and ready to go. Um, and so uh, it was pretty much the – we did get into a couple of schools of permit that that we fished to Um and like keys permit uh, we weren't successful which happens a lot um but um most 90 of, percent of our focus was on the tarpon and so the 10 and 11 weight were out um and uh that's pretty much what got fished
0: yeah i guess that two piece would be a bit of a guide favorite as well for just being able to keep in the skiff and that sort of thing so absolutely
1: yeah um And and they're a little different action than intentionally from the four-piece rods, Um, being a few inches shorter, um, and uh, they tend to have a little lower swing weight, and they have a little higher stiffness in the butt. Um, And so, especially in the big class rods, uh, where you know you're when you're tangling with tarpon or GT or you know, some of the biggest game fish you can catch on a fly rod. Uh, it, co- it comes in nice to
0: have that little extra power for pulling. I just saw a um, mutual friend of ours, Yoshi from New Zealand. He just got back from Itataki again. I tied him a heap of flies over there for the big GTs and they got some cracking GTs on the flats there. And I think he was using the 13 weight sector. Um, and yeah, sent me through some photos An incredible fish and just beautiful gin clear water. And, He had a great trip. Oh, that's great.
1: I would love to make that trip sometime. That's
0: that's on my list. Yeah, I think it's on the list for me too. Every time I send him over a fly order, he keeps asking me when I'm coming over. So I think I'll just have to make it happen one day. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, well, I just want to thank you again, Jim, for making time coming on and talking through the different models and a bit of history about yourself and Scott Flyrods. Was there anything that you wanted to add before we wrap things up? Go fish and have fun. I think that's some pretty wise words, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Josh. Thanks. Well, thanks, Jim. And I um, look forward to talking to you again soon. I'll let you know when this one's up. And um, all the best for going into the 50th year of Scott Flyrods next year. Thanks. Beautiful. All right. Thanks, Jim.